Hey everybody, Editor Nicole dropping in here just to let you guys know that this episode was recorded uh, quite a bit ago before the uglier stories about Army Hammer dropped, so we did not address that, and we certainly didn't address the latest announcement from Mark Zuckerberg about Meta. And I also wanted to uh, apologize for my audio quality. I had a lot of technical difficulties this episode and ended up having to phone in. It's still very listenable, but it's not up to the sort of quality that I like to put out for you guys. So just letting you know that. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, the podcast that rotates among different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is new to two. Hello everybody, my name is Brett Stewart. Joining me on the beginning of a brand new cycle, David Luzader, how are you? I'm doing great, Brett. I got a, I got a good idea here though. Let, let's drop the the and just be movie go round. It's cleaner. I didn't even know we were the movie go round, but I totally agree, Justin Timberlake. I totally, you're so charismatic. Uh, uh, I know, right? That curly hair. That curly hair. <laughs> Nicole, Nicole Davis, how are you? Oh, now, see, I was going to suggest just go round. Oh, or yeah. Maybe just, maybe just round or just go. It's but cleaner. no movie. It's, it's, no movie. Yeah, it's cliche. It's a, we leave it implied. Right. Absolutely. Well, this week is new to two. That is the theme where one of us gets to pick a film that the neither of the other two have seen before. It was my opportunity to pick a film. And uh, before we announce what my pick was, let's go ahead and talk. I mean, we already kind of have. Let's talk about next week's pick. It's a Netflix roulette, or as we've taken the now calling it, Prime Flix roulette, because we've included Amazon Prime in those spins. Uh, we got the 1993 rom-com for Love or Money. With Michael J. Fox. Have either of you seen this? I have not. No. I have not. <laughs> not even a minute of it. Doesn't look great. I'm excited. Alrighty. <laughs> Michael J. Fox. I'm here for him. Even this if it's movie not great. It's terrible. It's gonna be great. <laughs> it can be it can be terrible, but Michael J. Fox is just Michael J. Fox, so I'm here for that. Alrighty. Well, uh this week. An Oscar-winning film. <laughs> um, so we'll have a good dichotomy back-to-back. -back. Uh, I picked The Social Network. In 2003, Harvard undergrad and computer genius Mark Zuckerberg begins work on a new concept that eventually turns into the global social network known as Facebook. Six years later, he is one of the youngest billionaires ever, but Zuckerberg finds that his unprecedented success leads to both personal and legal complications when he ends up on the receiving end of two lawsuits one involving his former friend, uh, best friend, I would add in there, as they painstakingly let you know that throughout those legal proceedings in this movie. And only friend. Uh, they also like to point that and out. And only friend, yeah, because, God, the Zuckerberg in this film, shocking he has one friend. Uh, so, yeah, the reason I picked this for New to Two is, is I, I thought about choosing it for future classics at some point, because it definitely is... In my opinion, I think it'll be a classic in some form, just as a piece of cinema that is just so of its time and so encapsulating of a very specific era of web 2.0 and coming around out of the years of 
Napster and MySpace and Friendster and entering the years of Facebook, <laughs> which we're still in. So I think that just encap- encapsulates a really unique time in our history. The performances are phenomenal, albeit really hateable. And I know we'll get into that, uh, but that just speaks to how good they are. And I, I, the reason I ended up choosing it for new to two, quite honestly, is just because I was shocked you guys hadn't seen it before. So instead of going from the lens of a potential classic, I wanted to approach it from the lens of people who have managed to stay away from this from 10 for 10 years, <laughs> because it definitely is like one of those cultural films that a lot of people have seen. Um, so yeah. what's your guys' excuses? Uh, <laughs> we'll start there. Honestly, just never got around to it. <laughs> it's literally the entire reason I've never seen it. Sure. Uh, I, I remember when it was coming out in theaters, I remember the trailer very well because I talked about this on uh, Hit Me One More Time. There's a children's choir singing the song mm-hmm. Creep and uh, children's choirs are often out of tune. I have very strong opinions on children's choirs. Uh, and I was like, oh yeah, that, I mean, that movie looks interesting. I was, I was, I, that was when I, when I was a little bit more pretentious in my film love and <laughs> so, you know, David Fincher, Aaron Sorkin, uh, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff appealed to me. I just never got around to it. There's a trailer of creepy children's choir singing Radiohead's creep to this song, to this movie. Oh yeah. It oh, was yeah, that, all that, over the place when that this was movie the came teaser. Out. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. That's it's a little a, it was like, heavy handed. It was it was flashing uh, uh, profile pictures, like profiles, Facebook profiles, while kids sang "Creep." No, all right. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Why are you treating me like I'm making this up? No, I believe you. That's oh, that's so pretentious. Okay, um, Nicole, you had never seen the Social Network either. Yeah, um, it sounded boring. Frankly, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like, do I want to watch a movie about the invention of Facebook, which is? You know, something that was clearly done by people sitting in front of a computer in a room somewhere. And how how interesting could they possibly make it is what I thought. You know, and I mean, I don't want to discount. I would say, you know, like 75% of the time, if you tell me it's a David Fincher movie, I will say, ooh, you know, let's go. You know, he's whatever his process is and no matter how annoying it is and uh, how pretentious he might be he is an excellent filmmaker he is an excellent craftsman at putting together a film and making at least visually interesting to watch but uh, on you know like i said it, it i wasn't sure how the subject matter could be made dynamic and involving and interesting and especially you know with what zuckerberg's image in the public consciousness is generally i said you know do i need to see a movie about this guy and so i I stayed away for the most part so (laughs) and this came out 10 years ago like it's it's shocking this movie's a decade old that is feels so weird to me. <laughs> yeah, I was also going to know that you were you're almost out of time to make it a future classic anyway. <laughs> yeah. They uh I, I think the movie recognizes Nicole how much of this happens behind a computer and how much of this really the founding of Facebook and the coding and that isn't that interesting because months just months pass in the blink of an yes. eye and there is zero mention of time at any point. It mm-hmm. is just like like 
at one point it's like, ah, oh, we're in, we're in five schools. And then someone's like, yeah, we're in a hundred schools now. I was like, hold up. That's, <laughs> that was fast. Yeah. We're going to go to one school across the pond. It was like, now we're in five. Yeah, we're exactly. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> and, and we'll get into it, it later in the show. But I mean, this movie and also the book it was based on, take incredible liberties with the story and, and you're going to have that with any oh, fictionalized yeah. account but some are quite incredible uh they they take leaps and bounds to make this interesting um because as zuckerberg himself has said when he first heard they were making a movie about him he just didn't get it he was like my life is boring and my life was boring while making facebook and by and large it kind of was a lot of the most interesting things that happened in this movie did not happen so we'll get into that and and talk about um, Aaron Sorkin's pension for doing that with this. Um, but let's go ahead and start, talk about David Fincher a little bit. I feel like for the audience, just we're talking a lot about his type of movie. You know, this is the guy behind what fight club, um, alien three Zodiac, right? <laughs> really? Yes. The curious case of Benjamin button yeah. dragon tattoo also, girl with the dragon tattoo. That's, that's a Fincher film, right? Yeah. Okay. So he's got a type. Yeah. He's, he's, Oscar Beatty, if you if you want to call him that a little bit at times, but as Nicole yeah. said, he can make great movies. He's an he's an auteur. He's got his own a distinct approach. Yes, he is. I think Mank is his movie this year. Hmm? Yes, the, I think I think Mank is his movie, the one that came out this year, the one on Netflix with uh, with Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried. Um. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, for this movie, uh, he shot two hundred and sixty eight hours of material. To which uh, my question of what <laughs> it was it of parties because there's a lot of parties. It's generally uh, I watched the special features disc and they were talking to the editor and sound designer and yeah shot 268 hours of material and mostly it's just multiple takes of every single mm, shot. Interesting. Like 10, 12, 15 takes sometimes of the most emotional scenes in the movie. Like in the featurette, you see five takes of that shot of Andrew Garfield turning around, crying, saying, I was your one friend. And and I mean, every time. It's a great performance. It's just he's doing something slightly differently every time. And so that's what Fincher likes. He likes to have options options right and to the point where they were saying with the sound design he would want like a separate audio track from the visual instead of taking the ambient sound from one video track he'd say like no 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 i like the way this shot worked out here but i want to use the audio track from over here and then he would say within the audio track he would say okay i like this take for this line and this other take for this other line. So can you put those together? And then it would be, okay, I like the inflection on this word that he did on this take. God. <laughs> but I like the rest of the sentence from this other take. And so it get he's fair he builds a mosaic, really, more than shooting a movie, the way that most people do. He's the anti Eastwood. I was just I, literally <laughs> the words were coming out of my mouth as you said it. <laughs> yeah that's funny and i mean there are there are artists like that you know you look at in music at someone like bruce springsteen and and every track you've ever heard of a bruce springsteen album was recorded over the course of 30 hours of him making everyone in the studio's life hell 
because he pieces <laughs> every tiny little piece together. It's never just one t- one take or several. It's hundreds. So I, I buy that. I think that also then even further speaks, speaks to some of the performances if they were able, able to keep it up. <laughs> of course, multiple yeah. takes because like that scene, like there there are several scenes in this movie. And I think one of the reasons that this movie is able to succeed in being mostly interesting on relatively uninteresting subject matter is it's a very human story about this dude really messing up his friendships. And you feel that with, particularly with, with Andrew Garfield's performance of uh, Eduardo Savern. It's just, mm-hmm. it's painful to watch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that really is kind of the heart and soul of the film. Uh, but it takes a while to kind of whittle into the emotion of it. Because like there's a lot at the beginning about you know him screwing over the Winklevosses, uh, the Winklevi as he as he says <laughs> at one point, uh, Army Hammer giving a great performance as Army yeah. Hammer and Army right. Hammer, and so it's like kind of split between that and the the Eduardo stuff. And then as the movie goes on, like there's one scene towards the end where it goes back to the Winklevosses just to kind of like touch on them and remind the audience like oh yeah they were part of this story too, but really their last scene at like the party that they're at is very like kind of inconsequential really in the grand scheme of things. And it really does kind of become about the the way that he messed up his friendship with Eduardo. I think the Winklevosses also were inconsequential. And I think maybe that's why the film treats them like that is, is yes, you're right. It like builds them up throughout the entire movie. But at the end of the day, there's a reason no one knew who the Winklevosses were. I understand they're Olympic athletes, but before this movie really came out because they didn't have that great idea that catapulted them to the top the way he did, or at least they would say that they did have that great idea. We're going to get, you know, we'll get to that. (laughs) Like, yeah. Um, Why don't we get to it now? Uh, I put that in our docket because I wanted to get your guys' opinions. And I think everyone reads it a little bit differently. Uh, You know, this movie's based on the first half of the film and and really the full, the full first act is all about how they've come to him as these, pompous harvard ivy league dudes that they're ivy league bros in the worst possible sense like they they row they they are in a what do they call them they're not frats they're not houses oh the clubs the, the uh, clubs it's like 10 levels above frat um the final clubs of the final, final clubs right the finals clubs they're, they're exclusive daddy's got a lot of money and they try to throw it at a developer to build them what they call the harvard connection which is going to be essentially a dating website for harvard students that's exclusive because in order to get on they have to use their harvard.edu email uh zuckerberg leads them on for a long time never makes it and some of that dna while not the code makes its way into facebook do you guys think that he stole this idea and to what degree? I mean, very obviously they had the the bare bones of the idea. They kind of had the spark. Of, but what they came to him with is like, hey, here's our idea. What's your version of it? And then he went and like made his version of it. Like, I'm not saying what he did didn't in some way. Eh, I don't I don't really think it was the same thing that it ended up becoming. Yeah, I mean, it, what they came to him with was basically a a blend of Match.com and LinkedIn for Harvard, rather than what Facebook is now in terms of the actual social interaction. 
that goes on. Because as the movie would have us believe, their life is all about exclusivity and they love that exclusivity. I mean, they get a, a meeting with the president of Harvard at one point uh, because they feel they deserve it, but they have to go through their daddy's connections to get it. And I, mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the, yeah. the scene with the Harvard president. And the president's <laughs> like, why are these people here? Well, we came up with an idea for a website called Harvard Connection. Uh, we've since changed the name to Connect You. And Mark Zuckerberg stole that idea. I understand. And I'm asking what you want me to do about it. Well, sir, in the Harvard Student Handbook, which is distributed to each freshman, under the heading Standards of Conduct in the Harvard Community, it says the college expects all students to be honest and forthcoming in their dealings with members in this community. Students are required to respect public and private ownership and instances of theft, misappropriation, And, yes, sir, punch me in the face. Go ahead. Yes, yes, I love that line so much because it just I I laughed out loud I when I when I heard that. Uh, but they, like they, I don't think their vision was ever to have anything outside of Harvard. And if they if they had had control of it, they maybe never would have wanted to do it outside of Harvard. And I'm I'm talking about within the film. I don't actually know these right. people and their desires. I'm talking about them as characters in this film as presented. They feel as like no, no, no we're going to keep it on Harvard because. That's the importance of it is that it's it's the Harvard Facebook. Yeah. The Harvard connection. Right. Right. And I think that's really the only DNA that made its way to Facebook was that Facebook, you know, th- this was an idea for guys to meet girls. And they, and they say that in the film. And really what Facebook turned into and has continued to turn into for yeah. better or for much worse is the entire social interaction of humanity on a website, right? Or trying to replicate that in some way. And in order to do that in the beginning and to drum up that interest, he had that exclusivity of needing.edu emails. It grew from Harvard very quickly, and but you still had to be college student. If I'm not mistaken, when I first signed up for my first face, my, my Facebook account, I was in like seventh or eighth grade. And I, <laughs> I know Nicole, but I signed up and I had to lie and say I was at least old enough to be in college. You didn't need a .edu at that time. They'd gone away with that so I could get in. But if you were under 18 or something like that, you had to lie and say you were older than 18. Everyone did. Um, so for a long time, it stayed really directed at college kids. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I remember people complaining because I was in high school when I... Hi, Nicole. Uh, when I signed up for, <laughs> for Facebook... <laughs> But I, I remember there were some people that were like complaining of the fact that high schoolers could now be on there. And that was because, because it, it now, they, they, I mean, the joke even in, gosh, the late 2000s, early 2010s was, oh, well, now, now it's just parents on Facebook. But there was like a, a spot where it was, oh, okay, it's no longer college kids. Now high school kids are on here. Oh, great. And then it was what we got to now where everybody, at least has a Facebook page. Everybody and their moms have a Facebook page. Quite, yes. Quite <laughs> so let, let's get some anecdotal evidence here. Nicole, as yeah. someone who was raising kids at this time, yeah. when did you start at using Facebook? Uh, when my age had a three as the first digit. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I'm usually behind the curve. I am never like the first person on a service which is why my email account name is so long and my, uh, you know, my Twitter handle is 
yep. weird and involved because I didn't get there early enough. But, you know, I, I wasn't there nearly early enough to nail down Nicole Davis as a Twitter handle. So I think it was 2008, probably, when I signed up. That wasn't, um, that wasn't too long after I'd signed up for one. So, But, I mean, back then, that it had evolved considerably from its start here. And uh, yeah. it still had a wall that you could have swag on. Like, you could have these faux pins oh, man. on wall. your wall. Like, in a fake cork board, you could get, like, a cork board background and put these things that would be, you know, like the buttons. Like, your the flare. They would wear an office space, you know. It was it was a flare. And it had thirty seven pieces. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I missed that honestly. And but it keeps changing. And I'm I'm happy actually that there was a line in the movie about it that explained it why they can't seem to leave well enough alone in terms of the website design. It's fat. It's like fashion. It's never done. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. There, oh gosh, there was some. Everybody I know hates the latest incarnation. Absolutely hates it. <laughs> and it. most people are doing it only on mobile because of that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and there's a long history of that with Facebook, like you said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I remember some of the early changes uh, and just pe- like beyond the, the no longer needing a .edu, just some of the format changes people complaining mm. about it and people like yep. starting groups to be like, bring back the old Facebook. Of yep. course, none of that ever went anywhere nope. or will ever go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, I think it'd be hilarious if someone started a, like a, a vanilla Facebook, uh, like the vanilla <laughs> wow server. It's like, do you want the Facebook of 2007 back? Here it is. Do you want his yeah. blue digitized face blurred out in the middle of the masthead? <laughs> that is in this movie. I mean, that might just be the like the genius of Mojang is they have vanilla Minecraft available still. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and because some people love that. But, of course, there's as much money as they make. They are still not making as much money as Facebook makes. They don't have a billion users. But for the for the first time, or for the first time in a long time, the number has started to go down just a little bit, which is insane, yeah. by the way. I think that's because I think people are migrating; they're starting to look for something, the next big thing. <laughs> One thing I do want to talk about as well is, as long as we're talking about the uh, the brothers, <laughs> both played by Arnie Hammer. Um, oh yeah, I do love how this movie depicts just how much Ivy League people care about their insulated world. And how much no one else cares about I, it. I don't love it. No? Tell me why. I what? don't love it. I mean, there's certainly, especially at Harvard, there is certainly that tier of people mm-hmm. where that's all they care about is the power structure and the access that being a Harvard alum will give them. But there's a much larger share of the student population who are have absolutely no interest in it and they are there to get their degree and they are there to learn things and because they're excited about learning and because they're hoping that they'll be able to get a job that will support themselves when they graduate man what do you do live nearby two things uh one go to harvard square don't touch the feet of the statue um because it is a a ritual for freshmen to have to pee on it (laughs) 
the, the, the feet that the statue everyone, of John is, Harvard mm-hmm. or uh, not John that's Harvard. That's not John apparently. Harvard. I've, yeah. I've, I've touched the feet and then learned this fact later and I will never be clean again. Uh, the, the second is I'm amazed this movie didn't ever once use the word concentration because you don't have a major at Harvard. You have a concentration. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Nicole's Nicole's right. There are some people who are super into it and yeah. will, you know, tell you they went to Harvard. But there's also most people that are going there just like, I just want to get my degree. <laughs> I, well, there absolutely I, is. But but I, I do think there's also an element where they talk about the crimson throughout the entirety of this this movie. And there are lots of well to do Ivy League or, you know, Northeastern schools that have their fairly reputable student newspapers that people just seem to care a lot about. And maybe I'm saying this as someone who's been on a college student newspaper and realizes how little it matters, but people care about what the Crimson has to say. And I just find that funny. I don't know why. Well, I mean, you're talking to someone who literally went to the Midwestern knockoff school of Harvard (laughs) to the point where our mascot and newspaper is called the Maroon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not going to say that other schools don't want to have the cred that Mm -hmm. Harvard does and do not aspire to that. But, I mean, I just do want to stress that this this emphasis in the film of this almost single-minded, obsessive focus on the exclusivity of Harvard is something that that very few of the actual students pay any attention to at all. and I think I think the movie actually does an okay job of because because you don't ever have Zuckerberg and Eduardo in this movie talking about you know like ah all the Harvard stuff in the way that the Winklevosses do who are like supposed to kind of represent that upper crust. They're Harvard gentlemen. Uh, they're, yes, they're Harvard gentlemen who who gentlemen know what of it's Harvard. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they know what the uh, the student handbook says. They they mm. they. Em- or the president of like, look Ugh. at these standards that Harvard is supposed to have. But you never have Zuckerberg, who is, I think, I think Eduardo is kind of shown really sort of as the as the most average college student. Like, yes, he he's liking into getting into these clubs because if you're going to Harvard, you'd want to, you know, and you, you you'd want to do the cool stuff too. But I never got the feeling that Eduardo was like he never was like I go to Harvard. In the way that the Winklevosses are like, we're going to row for this for Harvard in the Olympics. <laughs> no one. T- <laughs> I row crew. I'm 6'5", 220, and there's two of me. What, do you want to hire an IP lawyer and sue him? No, I want to hire the Sopranos to beat the <laughs> out of him with a hammer. We don't even have to do that. That's right. We can do that ourselves. I'm 6'5", 220, and there's two of me. And there's two of me, yes. I thought they handled that really well, by the way. Like they they do him up just enough to look different <laughs> when he's talking to himself. <laughs> it's a hair. So that does bring bring to light one of the liberties that this movie takes, um, and we'll we'll talk about them throughout the episode. But but one of them very much is is that I think this movie uh, it requires Eduardo to be almost like the protagonist in a way. He, he's 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 the heart of the movie, as David said earlier, because he's the only person who's remotely likable. Mark Zuckerberg certainly isn't, and it requires him to be someone you can sympathize with and someone you care about and someone you feel bad about when he gets screwed at the end of the movie. For what it's worth, there was a lot more gray area to that. You know, Eduardo in real life um, had had reportedly abused a chicken, not just 
<laughs> went off to New York and then immediately come back to Facebook. I don't know about the chicken thing. I don't know about the chicken thing. Um, but reportedly, he had, you know, he'd started a different venture. He was running free ads for his startup on Facebook, which pissed off Mark Zuckerberg. Um, he had stopped the financing to a point where Mark, Zucker- Mark Zuckerberg's family was taking out personal loans to pay for the servers. There was a lot of infighting and, and nastiness on, from what I can gather anyway, allegedly, on Eduardo's part as well. But of course, I think the reason you don't see that is because the book that this movie is based on, um, and I believe the book is called what the impossible, uh, the accidental billionaires, the accidental billionaires, um, was written in conjunction with Eduardo. He was a consultant on the book and a consultant on the movie. So of course he is casted favorably. (laughs) Uh, so just worth bearing in mind, they're all assholes, uh, allegedly. Yeah, but they but they needed from a story perspective. From a story perspective, you needed someone to further the 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 gap between Eduardo and Zuckerberg, and Sean Parker in this fictional sense is everything that Zuckerberg wanted to be. Yeah, and so you had kind of Zuckerberg fall into his gravity, and that greater pushed away eduardo also other favorite scene or moment in the movie is when sean parker tries to to talk crap to eduardo and eduardo turns around and just raises his fist at him and he backs off like a scared chicken and i I very much enjoyed that moment i mean a lot of this as we've said is highly fictionalized but i can i can see why from a story perspective like i can see why they did that because as we said the actual founding of facebook is very boring. <laughs> right. Played by Justin Timberlake. And then that's another Liberty uh, from reportedly Sean Parker is not like this, <laughs> at least to the extent that the movie portrays him as such. Um, he is definitely a, uh, a loose cannon in the sense that like, yes, he did eventually get ousted from Facebook because of issues with drugs and he got caught with cocaine and he had a bunch of other issues. And um, you know, he was someone that Eduardo was right to be very hesitant of, but to the level of snakiness that this movie makes him out to be seems detached from reality. Even in 2000, yeah, even in 2005, whenever like they were supposed to have been meeting, like that was a bad business idea. Oh, for sure. Napster did really like it was a, as a shock to the music industry who really should have been going digital so much sooner than they were And my God. Uh, but that's not what this movie's about. Yeah. Right. And Sean Parker previously of Napster primarily. Um, and, and you know, he, the, the movie makes some interesting points also just reflecting back on Napster, which at that point was as far removed as we are to this movie. Um, you know, looking at the fact that like he was this rogue agent of Silicon Valley that no one really wanted to work with because they were all scared of working with him. But, for better or for worse, Napster did change the music industry. You know, he makes a comment in the movie where he asks, you know, hey, do you want to Eduardo? He says, do you want to go buy a Tower Records? And and I, I sure as hell wouldn't right now. I mean, I would because I'd like to have a Tower Records. But uh, yeah, he changed the industry. So let's talk a little bit about Justin Timberlake. Nicole, you put in our docket. I'm not sure Justin Timberlake gets enough credit for his performance. Yeah, I mean, this the role that he plays in the movie is absolutely pivotal. He's the, the wedge 
that gets driven hard between Eduardo and Mark Zuckerberg. He's riding this line between, I think, being genuinely enthusiastic, at least that's the feeling that I get, and being a shark who smells blood in the water. And the opportunity to make money if only he can get into this guy's circle. So, I mean, there's this whole scene where he takes him to a club and it's basically a seduction where he's taken him to this, you know, fancy exclusive club. He's buying him super expensive drinks. He's pointing out that the server knows who Mark is without Mark having to tell her and really appealing to that ambition. And by doing so, really making himself part of the inner circle right. of Facebook. This was also the really the first movie. I don't know if you guys remember this. Uh, when the movie was coming out, it was such a big deal because everyone was saying, oh my God, Justin Timberlake can act. Because he had had a couple small roles before this in movies. But this was the kickoff to us looking at him as a dude who would later be in Oh, in time, inside Lewin Davis, we saw that trouble at the curve. Like he was in a ton of movies in like the early two early two thousand tens. Well, yeah, but I also remember most of the reviews saying, you know, he's he's fine, he holds his own, he's an acceptable actor. When really, I think he's it's not an emotionally showy role the way Andrew Garfield's is. Yeah. But it's an extremely important role, and I think he carries it off very well. I think this was kind of a little bit around the time where it was, this movie helped as well, kind of uh, make the gap a little bit bigger uh, between, so this movie was the Sean Parker for, uh, for Justin Timberlake and the perception of him as just the musician pretty boy. He was, it allowed him to, to kind of be viewed a little bit more as, as, an actor. He was in a big movie that was nominated for an Oscar. It was, it was not just Several like, Oscars. yeah, it was not just like, Oh, in Shrek the third, he's, <laughs> he's basically playing a joke version of himself. You know, he, you kind of stunt casted him a little bit. And this was, he was actually playing a character. It's not just like, Oh, Hey, it's Justin Timberlake. Yeah, it's Jared Leto to, to, um, the Dallas Buyers Club, albeit that actually won him an Oscar. Um, but I was just going to say, for the longest time, again, having not seen this movie and just kind of inadvertently never gotten around to it, for some reason, I thought he played Tom from MySpace. Okay. <laughs> that was in my head. That's one of the characters I thought he played in this movie. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I think he's great in the film. And I also wanted to talk about Jesse Eisenberg because he's one of those like very polarizing actors. Like, people have very visceral mm. reactions to Jesse Eisenberg, and I think it might be because he plays a lot of assholes, so maybe they just kind of, you know, instill that upon him. Um, I, they get that blur yeah. between reality and... Right, and, and I, I think he's a very good actor, by and large. Um, hot take here, I think that the, that the Academy was cowardly to give a 26-year-old in a movie about a website an Academy Award. I think he does a bit. I, I, I like the King speech. I understand. Um, I understand the love for it, but I think he was, he had the performance that defined cinema that year for me anyway. And I think the Academy was just not ready to go with someone like him over a Colin Firth. 
Okay, I think I think the way you worded it was I think you said you they were cowardly for giving it to a six year old. I'm sorry you, for not for not. Yes, um, yeah, okay. that, that they wouldn't give it to him over someone like Colin Firth who did the the grand old. I put on an axe. I'm here. Already has the accent. Um, <laughs> I was, yeah, was, was going to say he actually is. I spoke in an accent and a stutter, <laughs> and it was dramatic and it was historical. And uh, and this movie's about you know a 26 year old you want to punch in the face. And and I just don't think the Academy was ready for that. Yeah, I I love The King's Speech. I think it's a great movie. Um, I also am not somebody that hates on Eisenberg. Oh, he's so one note, blah, blah, blah. People like to say that kind of stuff and, and whatever, you know. Uh, Richard Dreyfus doesn't have an incredible range, <laughs> and we all love Richard Dreyfus. There's room in movies for what? Eisenberg does and maybe it's not everyone's cup of tea doesn't fit every movie but I can't think of anything I've seen him when we're seen him in where outright I'm like oh well he was terrible but then yeah. I haven't have you seen Batman v Superman okay we are not going to talk about <laughs> I know I just knew that would be a trigger <laughs> that's yeah that's a whole can of worms that you don't want to open right now because that would that that's a podcast all its own it is, but but like there's a movie, uh, there's a movie I've I've almost brought to new to two, and I presented it, and then I pulled it back and decided I didn't want to do it because I was afraid we wouldn't get enough of a discussion out of it, and maybe someday I will bring it back. But there's a movie called The End of the Tour, where um, Eisenberg plays uh, this this reporter for Rolling Stone who is interviewing David Foster Wallace, really in the last like year of his life, um, and. It's very similar. Like he he plays plays an asshole, um, and and he doesn't get David Foster Wallace, and I think he's frustrated by him because if you're at all familiar with you know the man, he was he was an odd guy, <laughs> um, brilliant odd man, and uh, the whole movie is you could kind of transplant his characters between the Social Network and this, minus the Mark Zuckerbergness, and it would be kind of the same. But it's really good. So maybe we'll bring it at some point. But he does have that one note that I understand he hits on. Well, but I mean, he's also, him. you know, I think he's very good in Zombieland. You know, yeah. He's, yeah. And, and, I, and I want to say, I don't necessarily think that he's always one note, but he does fit very easily into a certain role. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's not. Uh, I think it's hard for younger character actors. Because mm-hmm. there's only so many young character types that get cast. Usually if someone's young in a movie, they want them to be young and pretty and potential romantic lead. Mm-hmm. Which he's he's young and he's not unattractive, but he's mm-hmm. not, you know, the standard Hollywood pretty. He's, he's no Andrew Garfield. Army Hammer pretty. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks like a nice enough looking average guy. He's very, very good at dry. Delivery, yes. Extreme. Oh, yes. Which does not lend itself well to romantic leads or say uh, like action movies. It, it's also, yeah. it's a little bit just the way the guy talks too. I, I he was on uh, my brother, my brother and me, they have segments every once in a while where they'll, where they'll have, you know, their agent gets a celebrity to come on and for a second and answer a question with them. Uh, and they had Jesse Eisenberg on, and he like the way that he talks in this movie, like, yes, he's playing a character, uh, but still, that's just kind of the way that he talks. It, it's his voice. It sounds like it lacks emotion a little bit. 
I, I'm just saying, if we were making the reason they went with Keanu Reeves in the Matrix is because they needed someone who could seem like a computer. If you we were making the Matrix now, Jesse Eisenberg could could play the role of the computer. Ooh, can we make the computer with tennis shoes with Jesse Eisenberg? <laughs> It's funny you bring up Keanu because Keanu has always been notoriously made fun of for that one note style. But well, God, do we love Keanu? Yeah, how could we not? He's John Wick. He's he's Keanu. He's Keanu. Like, he's, he doesn't even have to be John Wick. Yeah. He's just amazing. Yeah, he's, he's a great human being. We know. Blah blah. Keanu. Yeah, he's a nice person. Welcome blah. to the Keanu fan hour. Gave, gave his, you know, uh, you know, he gave his uh, his salary a large chunk of his salary in the Matrix to the special effects crew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Donates endless money to charity. Uh, yeah, Keanu. Keanu. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think he's quite good in this movie. But, but yeah, Colin, Colin Firth is good. <laughs> uh, but, but as long as we're talking about like his dry delivery, I one of my favorite moments in this movie, and I know it's like everyone's favorite moment um, for a lot of folks that see it, is when he get he gets asked by one of the lawyers if he has his full attention and Eisenberg just kind of lasers in on him and says, no, you have an ounce of, of my, of my full attention. And if your clients want to sit on my shoulders and call themselves tall, they have the right to try. And he goes into this great, albeit short, but just razor sharp monologue about the attention that he does have is at the offices of Facebook and not on anything that anyone in this room is either intellectually or creative capable of even doing. Um, And it's just, that delivery from him, he he carries the Aaron Sorkinness of the script very well. Mr. Zuckerberg, do I have your full attention? No. Do you think I deserve it? What? Do you think I deserve your full attention? I had to swear an oath before we began this deposition, and I don't want to perjure myself, so I have a legal obligation to say no. Okay, no. You don't think I deserve your attention? I think if your clients want to sit on my shoulders and call themselves tall, they have a right to give it a try. But there's no requirement that I enjoy sitting here listening to people lie. You have part of my attention. You have the minimum amount. The rest of my attention is back at the offices of Facebook, where my colleagues and I are doing things that no one in this room, including and especially your clients, are intellectually or creatively capable of doing. Did I adequately answer your condescending question? Man, you ruined my joke. I was going to say uh, fast-paced, dense dialogue. Who wrote this movie? Aaron Sorkin? <laughs> Who appears briefly in this movie as an ad exec? Aaron Sorkin? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the my favorite scene in the movie is the opening, um, where he's talking to his soon-to-be ex-girlfriend in a bar. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and just within, literally within five minutes you feel like you know exactly who this guy is and you hate him. (laughs) (laughs) What? You asked me which one was the easiest to get into because you think that that's the one where I'll have the best chance. The one that's the easiest to get into would be the one where anybody has the best chance. You didn't ask me which one was the best one. You asked me which one was the easiest one. I was honestly just asking, okay? I was just asking to ask. Mark, I'm not speaking in code. Erica. You're obsessed with finals clubs. You have finals clubs OCD and you need to see someone about it who will prescribe you some sort of medication. You don't care if the side effects may include blindness. Final clubs, not finals clubs. And there's a difference between being obsessed and being motivated. Yes, there is. 
then talk about, well, I'd, sorry, Nicole, do you have more that you're going to say on that? No, no. I mean, it's just the, it helped to draw me in to the movie as well, just because mm-hmm. I recognized the type from my own college days. It's like <laughs> they're, they're in love with their own intellectualism, but underneath is like this crushing doubt in their worth. <laughs> As a person. Well, you mentioned, <laughs> I, I think you put it eloquently in our docket. You know, the open scene reminds, reminds you of a guy who admires his own brain power and ambition, but lacks in compassion in both for others and himself. And without the admiration of other people, what's the point? And that, that's very much his mentality kind of throughout the whole movie. It doesn't change a whole lot. across from his girlfriend and telling her that she doesn't need to study because she goes to BU. <laughs> oh. <laughs> now... We we we've we haven't really talked about the women of this movie much because uh, they're largely an let's. afterthought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's. Uh, you, you have you have briefly the character of Erica who has the the brief scenes that she's in. Uh, she definitely has some really great lines, like when he approaches her in the restaurant. I really enjoyed that moment. There's a little bit of comeuppance. The internet's not written in pencil, Mark. It's written in ink. And you published that Erica Albright was a bitch right before you made some ignorant crack about my family's name, my bra size, and then rated women based on their hotness. Erica, is there a problem? No, there's no problem. You write your snide from a dark room because that's what the angry do nowadays. I was nice to you. Don't torture me for it. If we could just go somewhere for a minute. I don't want to be rude to my friends. And the only other really female character is Brenda Song, who I, I like Brenda Song, but um, also poor Brenda Song for the character she had to play. Is she, does she play uh, Eduardo's girlfriend? Yes. Christy? Okay. And also there's, there's Rashida Jones oh, playing yeah. the, you know, one of the, one of the, but this, this is where it gets into where this movie I think it's a little inherently misogynistic on the script's end, and, mm-hmm. and I know that's always been a critique of it. I, I know, <laughs> but but like for instance, like you have someone like Rashida Jones's character, whose sole purpose is to sit in the background and say, "Oh, look at me! I'm not very important. I'm here to learn from the big guys because they said it would be valuable for me to be here." But I'm going to offer you a little bit of advice on the side and be this emotional counterpart that you need in these scenes, and it just maybe that is some inherent misogyny on display in the world of law that I don't know about, but it, you just feel it and you feel but it. Also, that's kind of how Aaron Sorkin writes women. <laughs> yeah. And, but I mean, she also fulfills the role of telling us that Mark Zuckerberg in this movie is not entirely a bad person. Right. He just right. has, low emotional intelligence despite the fact that he has done nothing in this movie to prove to us the audience otherwise that he is not yes yeah that's the problem is that she has to tell us that he's not an asshole but we never see him not being an asshole yep and i think that's one of the problems of the script and and maybe it's just because the the reality of it wasn't there but but you don't have any way to have a resolution in a movie like this i've always as much as i do enjoy this movie for what it is um the the end has always felt incomplete to me and unfulfilling it, because it it's like everyone goes back to being billionaires and millionaires yeah, and no it, one cares it, because it doesn't there's not really an ending it's what facebook's still going on 
the the legal scenes, the litigation isn't interesting enough to be the story itself. So it just kind of gets to a point where it's like, and Mark Zuckerberg is alone, but is still a, a billionaire. Yeah. But he's still anymore. sad about that one girl yeah. because there's that scene where he asks Sean Parker, "Do you ever think about the one girl that rejected girl that you away. or something like yeah. that?" <laughs> yeah, the girl that got away who rejected you because you're an ass, and and do you ever think about her? And and Sean Parker says no because look at this Victoria's Secret model next to me, and there the movie ends with him hitting refresh on her profile, hoping she'll friend him. That was so. Um, that was did it give us barely like they mentioned it at once every. Every 45 minutes, like there was not enough of that in the movie to really make me feel the impact that he was still thinking about her. Yeah. Which is another weird element because he was in like, he was in a long-term relationship the entire time he made Facebook. So like none of the either ineptitude or drama surrounding women uh, or meeting girls was seemingly as important to him as this movie makes it seem. The ending just to me underscores the fact that this guy is not a good person because mm-hmm. he won't leave this girl alone. She has told him in no uncertain terms that she doesn't even want to be friends with him ever. And shortly after the first time she tells him she does not want to be friends, he completely humiliates her publicly on his blog. Then at the end of the movie, he has this expectation that she'll she'll want to even be Facebook friends with him. And it underscores the, you know, the privilege of this character. I'm not going to say the actual yeah. Zuckerberg, but <laughs> the character Mark Zuckerberg in the film. There, There's also, I think that also kind of helps underscore that at the end is when uh, Rashida Jones comes in. is like, oh yeah, they're going to work out and they're going to settle, settle. And he's like, they're going to settle? Like, because that, that just reinforces it. Yeah. yeah, he's right this whole time. And that Eduardo has no right to any of the money whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't put yeah, me that, on his side. No. <laughs> no. And, and there, there's a scene in the movie, and I, I can't remember her exact phrasing, but she really says to him, more or less, stop crucifying me for being kind to you. Because she was only ever kind to him, uh, at least in the in, in the scope of the movie. No, no, he's awful. He's awful. <laughs> uh, I, but I want to mention that first scene with her because it also brings up an element of sound design in this movie that I think is very cool, which is that the sound design in this movie does a very meticulous and incredible job of creating sense of place, um, almost to its detriment at times, but in a very beneficial way that a lot of movies don't. Um, when they're in bars, when they're in clubs, when they're in these houses where there's a lot going on, where there's girls doing drugs and there's a dude falling into the pool and there's a dude coding in the corner and Sean Parker's running around making smoothies. Um, these areas in which a worse movie, a lesser movie, wouldn't have wanted to play with all that extra noise. And this movie just lives in it. And I think as a result, you feel more immersed yeah, in the movie. Yeah. Although again, that's, it's part of the collage in that, you know, they did a bunch of takes with the extras talking in the background at full volume. They did a bunch of takes with the extras miming that they were talking in the background. And they took like one take of the extras noise against uh, getting the primary sound off the actors and ambient sound of, you know, glasses and plates kind of thing. 
in there. So, but I mean, yeah, they do, they do an excellent job making you feel like you're in those spaces. They do an excellent job of making you feel like you're in the Harvard dorms. I mean, cause these build, those buildings are really old mm-hmm. and Harvard is super strict about how it looks and how it's portrayed. And they, Fincher's still mad about how difficult Harvard made it for them to shoot on campus. You know, they wouldn't let him take certain cameras into certain places. And so he couldn't shoot it exactly the way he wanted. And that really ticks Fincher off when he can't do it exactly the way he wants to. <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> Was there anything in the special features about that club scene? Because I've always wondered if they layered in the club noise yep. or, or if they, or if they actually had these guys yelling over music and then, mic them closely no because it does seem no you can very you can see it on the uh, the special features they actually show you the club scene and how it's put together and they have this crane shot of that comes in at the top of the club and like swoops down among the people who are dancing and then comes back up onto the balcony where you know sean parker and mark zuckerberg are having drinks and the music is playing while the crane is coming and swooping down among the dancers and then as it comes over the balcony they cut the music on the set, oh. but the people had to keep dancing as if the music <laughs> was still going. And then they recorded the dialogue, you know, with the, with Justin Timberlake yelling as if he's trying to yell over the crowd noise. <laughs> like the scene is suffocating it's as suffocating <laughs> as you imagine being in that club would be yeah. it's like anxiety inducing the watch i've only ever been in one club that's that's like that at all with like the high ceilings and the darkness and the lights <laughs> and the right. noise and it's just you really have to either get straight up in someone's face or just be like hey do you want to go outside and get some air you know it's a, the whole where your throat is sore by the end of the night from trying to talk to the people you're with. Yep. Right. As long as we're talking about that sound design, let's also touch on the score, uh, uh, a Trent Reznor affair. Trent Reznor, Atticus uh, Ross. And yeah. Atticus Ross. Yeah, right. It was very um, collaborative. And, and, and this was this was like one of the, the big uh, movements for him to, to become a composer. You know, to move out of the to to become in, at least in popular culture as a as a sophisticated and well known composer, and he did a remarkable job in this movie. I mean, this soundtrack is unmistakable. It's one of those soundtracks that you do inherently recognize because of those sparse little electronic pieces of these long dro- droning synths in the background. Nicole, you sent us this video of him playing this wacky instrument that was custom made for him, mm. which I can only describe as like 
a a steel guitar, but if it was instead of instead of strings, it had like Laurie Anderson's magnetic tape that you can like bend up and down. Um, I thought of it as kind of like a hands-on, like a combination between a steel guitar and a theremin sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's wild, and he's like, "Oh yeah, there's just like." a bunch of cords and circuit boards and everything's a mess under there. I don't know how it works, but it sounds cool. We didn't want to make a crystal clear, clean, digital, too precise sounding record or score, I guess in this case. So we wound up primarily using this instrument, which is a pretty weird piece. It's called a Swarmatron. It's by these two guys in um, Brooklyn that hand build these things. And if you open some of these keyboards up, you'll see you'll find a circuit board. If you f- open this one up, you'll find a spider web of cables and soldering and madness. Um and and I, and I do think his experimentation just as an incredible artist is is wonderfully on display here. And he's gone on to do some really great oh, yeah. composing work. Resner is incredibly talented and and I I am I get excited now when I see that he's attached to something that I'm watching. Yeah, this is something I actually, you know, I had never seen the movie before yesterday, but I bought the soundtrack like four years ago, and I've listened to that a bunch of times <laughs> before even seeing this, um, just because I really like Trent Reznor's more ambient stuff. And mm-hmm. I mean, that was kind of the point of the music of this movie, is they knew that the dialogue was going to be front and center. For the the vast majority of the film. And there weren't going to be a whole lot of times where the music took center stage over the dialogue. Mm -hmm. So what they did was just like they experimented with different, different tones and sounds and instrumentation noises. And like Trent Reznor would come up with the notes and then Atticus Ross would build the, the ambient part of it. With, you know, echo effects and reverb and, and various other things that I don't know the vocabulary for, but I'm sure there are very specific words for what he does with it. And <laughs> it's, um, you know, I've, I find it uh, fantastic. It's, it's really well done, except <laughs> for there's one part in the score where they did an arrangement of The Hall of the Mountain King by Edvard Grieg for the regatta. You know the the, yeah, yeah. the crew race, and right. apparently it took them three weeks <laughs> to do that because it went back and forth from them to Fincher and back to them and back to Fincher and back to them and back to Fincher uh, to refine it to get it exactly the way he wanted to go with the visuals. And that's so. really the only time that the the music is heavily featured front and center. Yes. I just thought it was interesting that the one time where it's like super front and center, it's not an original composition. Yeah, that is interesting. And as frustrating as, as that entire process sounds, um, certainly hasn't turned Reznor off of working with Fincher because, my goodness, I mean, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, all Trent Reznor productions. Um, 
it, and also also with um with Ross as well. Uh, soul, both those guys are doing soul, which I just discovered today. Totally a different departure from what I expect from that duo. Yeah, wouldn't have expected so, to hear Trent Reznor was ever working for Disney. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wouldn't expect Trent to like to put together like a Brian Eno music for airports esque meditation on Mark Zuckerberg when this is the man <laughs> that he's nine inch nails. Like he is a, he's a chameleon. So I want to see like him and Henry Rollins Reznor. dropped into a cage match. <laughs> I want to see him and Henry Rollins. Give me a Ted talk. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had the latter happen. Just Henry Rollins. I would imagine great. That they're, they're two guys who either would like get each other immediately and be best friends instantly or would absolutely hate each other. <laughs> Both are fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, but it's it's a wonderful soundtrack, and yeah. we had a couple other discussion topics as well to round the show out here. Uh, the Zuckerberg of this movie is much more interesting than the real Zuckerberg. <laughs> David, let's talk a little bit about that in particular because we've talked about the differences in reality versus fiction, but also just like the nature of Zuckerberg, he wasn't as snide and and confident no. as he no, is in this the, movie. This Zuckerberg is is conniving. And not a better person. When I say he's more interesting in the movie than he is in real life, uh, he's not a better person. We all know that that now that Zuckerberg is a uh, a lizard man in a human suit. Now I have never <laughs> I've never seen him remove his human skin, uh, but I did see his second pair of eyelids at some point uh, in in one of his briefings to Congress. But all that aside, he is not uh, he is not as this movie would have you believe. A, a super genius who is kind of under undercutting and is three steps ahead of everyone at all times. He's right. God damn it, David. I just, <laughs> I just spit out my water off mic because I was going <laughs> to spray it all over my laptop in a second. <laughs> now Zuckerberg, first of all, you're welcome. Uh, Zuckerberg <laughs> in, in real life is absolutely an asshole. Uh, he called, his users originally effing idiots because of the information they were willing to give him, which also protect your data online. Uh, also fair, but go on. But he <laughs> might also be an asshole. He's not this charismatic of an asshole. There it is. No, he's not confident. A lot of people who have seen this movie and know him say that this movie depicts him as so much more confident and maybe even, I don't know if charismatic is even the right word, but I, I think confident really just the, the sharp tact that he has in this movie of Aaron Sorkin speaking through him is exactly. not how he really That's speaks. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> I, would, I would believe yeah. that. And I, I don't know if you're going to have to bleep the whole podcast if you bleep out the word asshole, Brett, because I think we've used it about 27 times No, now. no, no. We're PG-13. It's fine. The movie uses it a lot. Uh, yeah. And, and we, we also had one more discussion topic in here about, thank goodness, there's so much talent behind this movie because... The people in it suck. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've talked about it. Fincher, an auteur, Sorkin, for all of his problems, writes very interesting to listen to dialogue. Reznor and Ross mm. created a great score. And the actors as well. You know, this movie is, is packed kind of to the gills of great actors, mm -hmm. which is really, luckily, all this comes together in a perfect storm of, oh, of a watchable thing that in lesser hands or with lesser people would not be watchable because you would not want to endure these people any longer. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like the reason I never got into Seinfeld. 
<laughs> yeah, no it. one's likable. Like, I love Seinfeld. Yeah, no we've been, I've been watching it uh, for the last few months, just like an episode here and there. And as much as I love it, it does. They do frustrate me more now as time has gone on. <laughs> Wait till that series finale. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So no, you're out. You're both absolutely right. Uh, and then also so nice of them to have all the bro types represented. Uh, <laughs> truly, this movie yep. is a cornucopia of bros. Yep. Uh, so many. And like multiple of them played by <laughs> you have you have the tech bro. You have the the Harvard, you know, Ivy League school bro. You have the business bro. And then you have the Silicon Valley uh, criminal bro. Well, and you've so got really. the jock bro, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the, yeah, absolutely. the fraternity bros. All the bros. And then I, I kind of wanted to end on uh, U.S. politics. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, but, but in seriousness, what I, what, what I do find most interesting about the legacy of this movie now is that the, the Facebook in this movie and the Mark Zuckerberg in this movie that we're talking about looks like such an asshole feels so quaint we hate him as a culture so much more now like the last 10 years have not rehabilitated any of the image that might have been damaged by a movie like this we only viscerally despise him as a culture 10 times more and as facebook you know facebook in 2008 was the obama campaign was was lauded for their use of facebook data and that was something that was just on the horizon and my God, if we had known even in 2010 when this movie came out, when we were reminiscing about the early days of Facebook, that 10 years from now, uh, it would be accused of aiding and abetting election fraud. Uh, it's just, it just boggles the mind, the behemoth that Facebook has become and how it has changed the cultural, sociopolitical landscape of the world. And the enormity that it tries to convey in this movie in 2010 feels so quaint. To what it became ten years later, yeah, a million to a billion. I think two. Also, we talked about this briefly, where people are jumping ship a little bit on Facebook, but also just losing interest. I think a bit. Like I have a Facebook page, but I largely maintain it in order for the pages that I that I run, and you know, I'm the for podcasts and stuff like that. Like I haven't updated it. Uh, I haven't put pictures on there in forever. I haven't changed my status in. <laughs> who knows how long at this point it just it's just there this way it's become so much a part of our lives where it's just it's just there yeah but i mean also the i mean there's a lot of problems with facebook but oh that's a hundred percent i think the two chief problems is one it's too big for people to be able to effectively keep let's go euphemistic misstatements from spreading uh across the network like wildfire and number two it has always been from day one it has always been amoral Mm -hmm. it is there to provide a communication platform it's not there to make sure that what's communicated is truthful or good or if checking to see if it's actively harmful or if it's helping dangerous people to organize or if it's helping positive people to organize it does not care it's never been designed to care and now i think it's too big to get it entirely under control yeah it doesn't it doesn't care why you use it uh the people behind it don't really care why you use it they just care 
that you use it. Right. And, exactly. and there's, there's two other elements to that, too. I mean, I, I just mentioned some of the U.S. political stuff, but let's not forget the key role that Facebook played in, in the mid to late uh, 2010s with the Arab Spring and things happening throughout the Middle East and the social network implications of organizing through that. And and now, as David joked about earlier in the podcast, Mark Zuckerberg you know, being deposed by Congress over an, a number of things. Um, he is... If you were to talk to the Mark Zuckerberg at the end of this movie in 2010 and say that, you know, you are now going to be deposed by the U.S. Congress about how you're going to start trying to truth police, you know, as Nicole said, like, it's gotten so big and how do we prevent the spread of misinformation and Facebook's answer to that, similar to Twitter's nowadays, and it's you get into the business of what is truth and what is not. And I don't think they ever expected themselves to be in that position. So just as a cultural artifact, I think this movie's so interesting from that from that perspective. I appreciate they don't ever try to make Facebook more than what it is. They don't ever try to say, Facebook is an ideal. Facebook mm. is this great platform. They're very straight up of like, within the context of this movie, it was just created to bring the social experience of college online. And they had no grand designs of, you know, of ever trying to be the platform that it is now. And to having to deal with that, it just... It, it, I, I just appreciate that they never were like Facebook can yeah. be a place of free expression and you can be whoever you want to be on Facebook. You can right. catfish whoever you want to catfish. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen jobs, but um, there's a reason this movie's spoken about more kindly. All right. Well guys, are you happy you finally saw it in some capacity? At least you can check this off your social cue card of things you can talk about to other people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a, I like smart movies generally. You know, and mm-hmm. while this is a little bit script is sometimes a little bit too clever for its own good. Um, <laughs> That's Sorkin. Is, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, it is smartly written. It, it it does have things to say about human relationships and how we should treat one another. And uh, it has, it effectively captures uh, the college experience at a school like this and you know, it was not at all a, a chore for me to watch. It was not one of those movies that we've watched where you pause it like every five minutes to see how much longer you have for it to go. And you're always surprised by how much more there is still to go. Uh, <laughs> this movie's two hours long and it doesn't feel it. It, it moves right along. It keeps the pace going. So they're not likable people, but it's a, it's a well-made movie. I liked the experience. Yeah, I would say, you know, for me, it's like, oh, I finally got around to watching it. Uh, Do I feel like I was missing out because I hadn't seen it? No. But at the same time, I'm I'm glad now that I've seen it. It is a movie, as we've talked about, great people behind the camera, great people in front of the camera. It's it's just a well-made, well-put-together movie. And I'm glad I saw it. Right on. I, I'm glad I brought it to you guys. Uh, well, that'll do it for the social network. Uh, if you want to find us on Facebook, it's at Movie Go Round Podcast. Uh, if you'd like to follow us on this platform, we've spent the last hour and 10 minutes talking about um, and how problematic it is. Uh, but Nicole, before we get into the very end of the show, we have some feedback from Patrick Walsh of the Scream Queens podcast. Uh, do you want to go ahead and read the note he sent us about Tigers Are Not Afraid? Patrick sent to us, I loved that you covered Tigers Are Not Afraid, but something has kept sticking in my craw. 
It was pointed out that there are similarities between Issa Lopez's filmmaking style and Del Toro's, which is true. But the conversation kept circling back to the topic, and the language had changed to imply that Lopez was directly copying Del Toro, which is simply not true. Magical realism is a realistic story with elements of fantasy blended into it. It had its literary origins in Latin America and is a prominent form of storytelling in those cultures. Both Lopez and Del Toro tell stories in the magically realistic style. To imply that Lopez is copying Del Toro also implies that Del Toro has ownership of an entire genre of storytelling that existed long before he started making movies. It's hard enough for a female filmmaker to get her voice heard. It just hurt my heart to hear her accused of plagiarism when all she did was tell a story in a style that's beloved in her part of the world. I think I think that's that's very interesting feedback, and I'm glad that he wrote in to to share that opinion with us because I think I, I speak for all of us when I say that that what we were trying to say was not that oh she stole from Del Toro. Um, and first of all, Patrick, get your craw checked out. It's not good to carry stuff in there for for very long. Uh, but if our conversation came off to say that oh she's just ripping off Del Toro, I don't think was our was our implication or was our thought process at all. I think what we all thought was, oh, it's still Toro-esque in a way of what she did and, and the elements that that are similar to Pan's Labyrinth were not so much stealing, but using in a very similar way or maybe even a loving send-up in some way. That was at least my take in, in my feelings on the Del Toro influence within the movie itself. Yeah, I think I would, I would agree with that mostly. I think she's... I, I do agree a lot with Patrick. I mean, magical realism has been around for far longer than Del Toro has. Um, I'm thinking particularly, probably the the biggest hit here of magical realism uh, from Latin America is Like Water for Chocolate, which is an absolutely lovely movie uh, that I highly recommend. But yeah, I mean, that's it's been around for quite some time, and Del Toro is certainly not the first. I think it's just that he's the most... A, he's the most prominent uh, filmmaker right now who uses it, I think. And B, he was a, a direct influence on Issa Lopez. You know, they were literally, you know, in communication with each other. He helped her get this movie out. But I don't I, I don't know that I'd even say that this was a, a loving send-up. I think it's just she's felt more confident in using it maybe mm-hmm. in that yeah. del toro used it so beautifully mm-hmm. that and, uh it probably gave her more confidence to add that to her story yeah i, I think perhaps i i chose words incorrectly i agree with you absolutely yeah i i agree with both of you i think for me here i i appreciate the feedback and i think it's really good feedback and i think that patrick is largely right i i think what we were trying to convey in that episode um similar to what David said, is I, I think that there is some reverence in that episode. I recently re-listened to it again, where we're talking about like, oh my gosh, she's using some things we've seen in things like Del Toro movies. Um, and we we made a point to call out like, we don't think, we didn't think that she was straight up knocking him off, that we felt like these were unique interpretations of her own. Um, but yeah, like there, there were things like the chalk where we, we had a fairly candid discussion about like, isn't this what we saw in Pan's Labyrinth? And I think Patrick makes a really good point that that this is really entirely her own entity in so many ways. And anything that is similar to, to something like Pan's Labyrinth or Del Toro film is probably very similar because of that culture of filmmaking and style. And I appreciate that that feedback. Um, the other part I would say is, is for me, when comparing the two, 
It also has less to do with the magical realism and more to do with the actual cinematography of it where and production design where they they lean into some of some some i some styles that seem a little similar to me with like the way they designed their their monsters and their ghouls and everything from the the ghosts to the the ghosts look like something that could be in something like Crimson Peak or or the creepy baby um not baby uh, bear, the creepy little bear. Like, like these are things that that we've seen styles in Del Toro. So I think for me, like I I see the visual parallel there more so than like the storytelling. And, and I just want to I want to thank Patrick again for writing in about that largely because you know it's it's always good to know it's always humbling to know ways in which our our words can perhaps come off uh, in ways that we did not intend to. And I'm, I'm glad we just kind of got a, a second Absolutely. chance to. Uh, to, to readdress it and maybe clarify ourselves a little bit and, and hopefully not make it seem like we are diminishing Isa Lopez as a, as a filmmaker or storyteller. I, it was certainly never my intention to. My gosh, no. I wholly agree with you. I mean, she is just such an incredible filmmaker, and I'm so excited for what she's going to do next. And this movie, you know, the reason I brought it to the show was because it was just unlike anything I'd ever seen, including a Del Toro film. Like, there there are elements there that... I think everyone can agree we understand some of those parallels of inspiration and that gosh that's I mean we could sit here and talk I always bring it back to music I'm sorry <laughs> but we could sit here and talk about all day all day long about how every other rock band post 1962 has sounded a lot like the Beatles it doesn't mean that that's that's wrong I think that great artists derive inspiration from artists that inspire them mm-hmm. and and I think that she did that in some ways and made it uniquely and wholly her own in, in those ways yeah well, thank you, Patrick. We appreciate it. Uh, now it's time for shameless sign-offs. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. What about you two? Where can we find you, uh, David? Davluz, D-A-V-L-U-Z. Find out what I'm up to there. And uh, what's going on? Uh, hit me one more time. I always announcing what episodes are coming out. So check it out. And yeah. Very good. And Unicol. I don't give out my Twitter handle because I just get upset on Twitter generally. Um, <laughs> I just retweet people who are smarter than I am for a lot of the time, but I am on Letterboxd. Uh, it's Nicole underscore Davis. I got to go update that right now. So yeah, you can find, I've finally put up like my 10 best lists from the last six years on there that I used to have just on Facebook. I also have every one of our movie go round films on there. So you can, check to see what you might have missed absolutely and uh go search it out so. absolutely and of course follow along one more time next week for love or money we're going to find out if it's one of those movies that's an hour and a half long but feels like twice that so follow along sure. on netflix if you'd like to also very end of the show i'm going to drop a weird bomb here i don't know if you guys saw this about the social network tarantino came out and said this is the best movie of the 2010s and huh I don't know what to make of that. I just find that interesting because I, I have a hard time <laughs> imagining Tarantino watching this movie and being like, yeah, that's great. Just knowing his style and knowing what he that's, likes. Yeah. But he loves that's like it. When, uh, when Tom Hanks one year said that Looper was his favorite movie of the year when that movie came out. I was like, Tom Hanks? Okay. <laughs> I'm cool with that, though. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino, I'd have thought he'd go more, you know, stay more in his wheelhouse and go with something like The Man with the Iron Fists. Uh well, he does go into his weird because then he he follows up by saying the second best movie of the 2010s is Dunkirk, 
Uh, and then he says, social network, hands down, it is number one because it's the best. That's all. It crushes all the competition. And Aaron Sorkin is the greatest active dialogist. Oh, of course he would write that. <laughs> of course he would. Just just a weird, a weird hot take yeah. that I wanted to throw <laughs> out there at the end. Not that I disagree. It's a great movie. I, I brought it. I think it's a pretty good movie. It's not my favorite movie of the 2010s, but I'm not, I'm not Quentin Tarantino. All righty. I'll do it myself, David and Nicole. We'll see you next week for Love or Money. Money.